is found in Joshua chapter 7. We are reading the entire chapter as we continue on in our series from this book discussing our role as the heir of all things. Joshua 7, but the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Conormi, son of Zabdi, and the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Bethaven, east of Bethel, and said to them, go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai, and they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack I. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about three thousand men went up from the people, and they fled before the men of I. And the men of I killed about thirty-six of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, he and the elders of Israel. And they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we have been content to dwell beyond the Jordan? O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? The Lord said to Joshua, Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up, consecrate the people, and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, There are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes, and the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans, and the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households, and the households that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And he who is taken from the, with the devoted things shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah, the clan of the Zerahites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zerahites man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel, and give praise to him, and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua. He said, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, 
and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. Then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent and behold, it was hidden in the tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel. And they laid them down before the Lord and Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and daughters and his oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, why did you bring this trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones, and they burned them with fire and stoned them with stones, and they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. And our God, as we come to another difficult passage in your word, we ask that you would grant us your spirit and that you would lead us in all understanding, that you take us into the truth of what this means for us today in Jesus Christ. And may we be your faithful people. We ask for the help of your spirit and that you would speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. In January 1982, the personal computer market was revolutionized. But it's not the players that you normally think of today. The revolution didn't begin with IBM or Apple or even Atari, who was a maker of home computers at that point. Rather, the company that owned almost 50% of the market, some of you may remember, Commodore, the C64. It was a hot machine. From 1983 to 1986, they sold over 200 computers a year. And even today, the Commodore C64 is the single most sold individual processor ever. Domination of the market. Customers in the U.S. and across Europe loved it. They were absolutely in love with the C64. But 1994, the company declared bankruptcy. They went from the height of market success, near dominance, taking out the competition, to declaring bankruptcy in the spring of 1994. It was a catastrophic fall, the height of success to the depths of failure. And the question has always been, what happened? Since that time in the 1980s, there's a whole business community that's developed an academic discipline to study these failures of catastrophic proportions. And they also study enormous successes. But it's intriguing to study the cases where there's tremendous success followed by failure to understand what exactly happened. It calls for self-reflection and self-criticism. It asks for honest answers to difficult questions. And really, in the church's life, that same discipline is helpful to look at the successes of the church, but also to consider its failures, but especially when we have failure that follows tremendous success. What is it that we need to learn? And what we have here in Joshua 7 is exactly that story. It's a haunting one for the church. Like the tremendous crash of the C64, here Israel goes from a tremendous success at Jericho, 
where they see God intervene on their behalf and win the battle for them. And then they go up to the small backwater fortified city of Ai, and they are routed. They are defeated. What is happening? And as we read the book of Joshua today, and we consider God's mission for us, what he calls us to do in going out and announcing the reign of our Lord Jesus to all the nations of the earth, making disciples of them, what is it that we need to learn about successes and failures, and what do we particularly need to own here? There's three brief things that I'd like to outline for you. The first is that we proceed, and and really the question is, what happens to us as we go out into that mission and as as failure follows success? The first is that we proceed without consulting God. This is what we find happens to Joshua in verse 2. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Bethaven, east of Bethel, and said to them, go up and spy out the land. Now, it's easy to miss this, but in Numbers 27, before Joshua was to make any decision, he was to consult the priest of Israel who was to use the umum, it's a strange Old Testament mechanism in which the will of God was discerned. This was given prior to the full revelation of Scripture. And so Joshua was to consult the priest at any major junction in the Holy War. And we find here in an economy of words that Joshua acts independently and autonomously. He simply sends his spies up to Ai. He sends them out to check out the city, and they were going to take it. And it is this failure on Joshua's part to consult with the Lord, to listen to his will, to seek his advice, to subject himself in this very simple way that Joshua failed the entire nation. And please note that Joshua was doing the right kinds of things. This is what God was commissioning them to do. But his failure was to not do it in the right way. And this is what's critical for us in the church today, is that we're not simply doing God's work and listening to his commands, but we're also doing those commands in the way that God instructs us to do so. And we are instructed to consult with God, to hear from him as we move forward and as we advance and as we proceed in his mission. And Joshua didn't do so. He just went on in his own way. And friends, this is what is critical for us in the church today. Because our work is a spiritual work. It's not just simply a work of strategy. And if we listen to the consultants today when they consider failures in the church, it's normally considered a failure just to have a good plan. But what we see here in Israel... It was not a failure of strategy. Rather, it was just sin. It was that Joshua, at least part of the picture, was that they had not consulted with God. He hadn't been obedient to that very simple commandment that he was to meditate on the law of God day and night. From chapter 1, verse 8. And so things begin to fall apart. And one of the primary questions for us is how do we, as individuals and also as a community, how do we consult God's will today? Because we don't have to go through the mysterious devices of the umim and the thumim, which many people find confusing in the Old Testament. 
But we have the full light of Scripture. And what Scripture reveals for us and lays out is a fairly simple program as to what it looks like to consult the will of God, to seek His leading and His guiding. A couple practical points here. But the first, of course, is to consult Scripture. That when we're making important decisions, we want to consult what the Scripture says. And by this, I don't mean to treat God like a magical genie in which you open the Bible and just blindly point your finger and see what he says, but rather to consider all that Scripture says that's relevant to the decision you're making. And so you will have many different Scripture passages and verses. You will have many different principles and precepts pointing at the thing that you're considering. And that's important to take in all of God's counsel, all of His Word to you, and to hear it. But that's the first step, is to consult the voice of God as to how He's revealed Himself. The second piece, of course, is prayer. It's to humbly ask that God lead you into understanding what He has said to know how to balance it and what are the things of first importance? What are the things that you really need to hear? And so reading scripture, saying our prayers. A third piece that's helpful to us is simply to consult history, whether it's history we find in the Bible or history in the church, to humble ourselves and know that we're just like other people and we're not really that special and that we can learn a great deal from the successes and failures throughout 2,000 years of the church's history in doing mission, but it's to consult that history. Then a fourth piece. The Bible has a tremendous amount to say with regards to consulting with the wise. That is wise leaders, people with experience, that we listen to them, that we open our situation to them, and we be willing to hear whatever comes back, and that we absorb that doesn't mean that we have to act in accord with it, but we should very carefully listen. And when we disagree, we should very definitely know why we disagree. And a fifth piece, of course, and this is especially when it comes to corporate reflections and decisions, is just a communal discernment. That we know how this is impacting the community. That we listen carefully. Because the church is not just a rampant democracy. But it is a place where we want peace and order, to be of one accord, to share in the will of God. And so this is the way that we move forward, is we use scripture and prayer. We look at history and we ask what we can learn there. We consult with godly people, wise leaders, and we take in their advice. And that we also do this reflection discernment as a community. And as we proceed in mission, this is what God asks of us that we consult with him, that we not be autonomous and simply go our own way, that we not think it's just a matter of getting the right strategy down, whatever that strategy may be, but rather it is a consultation with God because our work is a spiritual one. Now, the second piece of this is that we also know how to advance with a foolish confidence. And this is one of the critical things that happens in the church in its mission. When it finds itself in failure, it is because of an advance with a foolish sense of trust and confidence in the wrong things. You'll note in verse 3, it says, And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack I." 
Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. It's intriguing to watch the history of Israel because when Moses led the people to the brink of the promised land, it says that they melted in fear. They collapsed under their fear and uncertainty because they thought the people of Canaan were too strong. And we discussed several weeks ago that this was a failure of faith in which they failed to believe the promises of God. Here we have another failure. It's different, but nonetheless a failure. Because, see, all Israel was commanded in Joshua 1. If you look in verses 12 through 15, all Israel was to go up and fight together. And so here the spies return, and their advice is to only send up a small contingent because this can be taken care of. I is no significant city, and we're able to handle this problem. And so after not consulting with God, they then break the precept and the command of God, and they don't send the entire army up like they were supposed to. This, too, is a failure of faith, a failure to submit themselves to the commandment of God. Whereas Israel once thought they weren't too strong enough, now Israel considers themselves too strong. And you see what has happened. It's a misplaced confidence. They have put their trust in their own strength and in their own resources. And on the backside of their successes, this is what happened. And we're no different today. That on the backside of success, we're still prone to start to find our confidence in ourselves. We begin to advance and progress in the mission. And we shift that base of confidence from God and his presence and his promises and obeying his precepts to then going our own way. And this is the second thing that we find happening on the other side of success that led to failure. Now, the third here that the majority of the chapter is comprised of is the story of Achan. And here we see that we advance with compromises. Verses 1 and 2, it says, But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. The chapter is famous, and what Achan had done is that the city of Jericho was to be devoted to destruction, and the valuables were to be handed over into the Lord's treasury. And rather than handing them over, Achan kept some for himself, and he hid them in his tent. It's interesting because many people see this as an example of kind of petty theft, and then he is given capital punishment for it, and so they struggle with understanding it. But I want you to note the language that's used in verse 1 and verse 11 to capture this sin, because it is something far deeper than shoplifting that goes on here. It says that the people of Israel broke faith. And when we see that phrase, break faith, that means that they have done something to violate the covenant that God entered into them and then entered into with them. And then in verse 11, we find that language specifically, transgressed my covenant. This was the entire arrangement in which God had made them a special people, calling them out from among the nations, giving them special promises, and then giving them certain commands. And when God enacts capital punishment in the Old Testament, 
This enactment is always for things that are tied to and related to idolatry. And the language of transgressing the covenant comes from Deuteronomy chapter 17. And it's related, of course, there to this command to have no other gods before me. And so what Achan has done, even if we don't fully put all the details together, we're to understand that he has done an outrageous thing, as Joshua 7 tells us, that Israel breaks faith. They violate the covenant. They trample that covenant in God's whole program for redeeming the nations that is cast aside. It's intentional. It's blatant. It's a volitional act that impacts the whole community. You see something more of the nature of what Achan does, though, in verse 21, if you'll follow with me there. Achan is speaking, and he says, When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, and 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them, and see they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. There's a succession of three verbs here that are important. Saw, coveted, or you could translate desired, and took. We find those three verbs in short order in a similar place in Scripture in Genesis chapter 3, where Eve saw the fruit, she desired it, and then she took it. The play by the author of the book of Joshua is intentional. That Achan had done an outrageous thing in the same way that Adam and Eve in the garden had rebelled against God. That just at the moment when they had been given everything by God, they trampled that underfoot because they wanted something so bad that God had said no to. And they began to ask the question, well, is it really that bad? Will it really mess things up that much? Can I really not have this? And the book of Joshua leads us in the understanding is this is precisely what Achan does. And he breaks the covenant of God. He tramples it underfoot. It was volitional. It was willful. And one of the things that's important for us to understand as Achan makes this move is a very demonstrative point. And it's hard to quite access it when we're reading the English but the man's name, Achan, has the same consonants in the Hebrew as the name for a Canaanite. And this is critical for the church to catch in this very subtle play on words, ancient humor. What is being said is that the problem for the church is not out there in Canaan. The problem for the church is that Canaan lives among us. And this is what has happened. As this man has become covetous and desired and took, that he breaks the law of God. He transgresses it flagrantly. That his, not only has he stolen, but he's been deceitful and he's denied and he's desired things that God has forbidden. And it's revealing to us that Canaan lived inside of the Old Testament church. And isn't that still true with us today? And it's one of the challenges that we face in God's mission. is we're sent into a culture that doesn't share our beliefs and values. 
And we're attempting to be ambassadors of another kingdom to show forth different beliefs and values. And yet we ourselves struggle because we are compromised. It's easy for us to think that the problem in our mission is the world outside, but what's being declared so emphatically here is that the problem is inside of us, that we compromise the progress of the mission because of our own accommodation, because of our own lusting after sin, our own failure to take the precepts of God and to apply them to life. And so we have to think about this in the church's failure in mission. It's at least due to some compromises that we make. And we consider all this. It's heavy. It's a disturbing moment in the book of Joshua. But it's two points of application. What are we to learn from this? Two things here. First, we have to take sin seriously. We talk about the grace of God and the grace of God is real. And when we talk about taking sin seriously, it never nullifies the grace of God. But one of the things that becomes extremely clear here in the story of Achan as he is sent off to death is that God is determined to cut off idolatry from amongst his people. That he wants no other gods named, no other gods desired, things held above him, things held that somehow take our loyalty and allegiance. And that we have to take up the hard task of examining ourselves to ask, are there things that we value above God that we hold more preeminent than he? Because these passionate cravings that Achan experienced, we know them too. We know what it means to something, to desire something more than we want to follow and obey God himself. We know what those dynamics are like. It takes control. And we may be able to hide it. You can put it under your tent. But the other remarkable truth that comes clear is that God sees and God knows. Achan couldn't conceal this from the knowledge of God. He couldn't hide it. He could hide it from amongst his fellows, but it came clear. And as we read and apply this passage today, I believe one of the right ways to take this extreme sentence that's passed on Achan is to understand the seriousness of sin and that we are to put those sins to death inside of us. It's the New Testament's language of what we call mortification. It is to put sin to death, to cut it off. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Romans chapter 6, where we find the Apostle Paul working this theme out. And he speaks to us about the rigor of putting sin to death. But he only speaks to us about the rigor of putting sin to death because he speaks to us about the depth of God's grace that belongs to us. If you follow with me in verse 4, he announces what is ours in Christ. He says, we were buried, therefore, with him, that's with Christ, by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That this is God's promise to us, that when we have been baptized and brought into Christ, we have shared in his death. And we are now walking in newness of life. And the struggle for the Christian is to believe that this is true. 
Because on the day-to-day, you and I do not feel like this. This feels far from our experience. But the promises of God are not negotiated by your experience. He declares that this is what's true of you if you are in Jesus, that you have been set free. Follow in verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Another declaration of what God has done because we are united to Jesus. And then in verse 11, we receive the command. So you also must consider yourselves, or you could say count yourselves, dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is how you are to now consider yourself. That you are dead to sin. That you are dead to its controlling powers. And you are alive to God in Jesus. And finally, in verse 12, he finds the command. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. This is how we get serious about cutting off sin. It's by getting serious about all that God promises us in Jesus. That we have died to the reigning powers of sin. Therefore, we are not to let sin reign. And this is the task and the work of grace in our lives today. And so we're to take sin seriously as we take Jesus Christ even more seriously because he's the one who's cut us off from its reigning power. The second piece of this practically, though, what we do with this today is that we must allow our failures to teach us. You note that there was another memorial constructed here in Joshua chapter 7. We saw one after the people crossed the Jordan that God had parted for them. They took 12 stones and created a memorial that was to bring people into remembrance of that supernatural event in which God delivered them. And here we have another memorial constructed, a pile of stones erected over this man's body. And it was intentional. And we receive a note inside the text that it's still there to this day, speaking to to the audience that read that book originally. And that was intentional as well. That when they saw that pile of stones erected over this man's body, they were to remember that covenant-breaking moment. And they were not to be overwhelmed by shame and then grovel and crawl to God. But that entire memorial existed for one very clear purpose. That Israel would say, let's not go that way. Let's not pursue that path. Let's know that the Lord, He is God. That I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Let's hold fast to Him. And one of the most difficult things for us in the Christian life is learning from our failures. Oftentimes, we've not quite ever processed them in the right way, and so they still shame us. And so it's difficult for us to learn from those failures when they still are sources and causes of shame. But when we know we've been forgiven by God and Jesus, our failures become the richest moments of teaching and learning from God. And then we can even translate that into lessons for other people. 
Not where we're looking down on them from a self-righteous stance, but we know what it is to be a failure. We know what it is to be a hot mess in front of God. And we know what it is to be reconciled and redeemed and taught by him. And this is what has to happen in your life, in my life. It has to happen in the Christian community where we allow those failures that we experience to become the greatest lessons that take us to the truth, that take us to God himself. Because the church, we've had our failures across the many, many years that we've been engaged with God's mission. We get compromised in various ways with the culture around us, and we bring the world right into the church because of our own weaknesses. We fail to consult with God. We trust in our own strength. We do this oftentimes after our biggest and greatest successes. But our God's gracious. And he wants us to learn from these things. And he wants to take us into cutting off sin and removing it from our lives. And he wants to take us into a teachable place where we learn from those deepest moments of failure. That's what your God's doing in the world today with the church as he uses the church in his mission. Let's ask for his help that that would be so among us. Let's pray. Father, as we work through difficult things, We ask that you would teach us and lead us and guide us into all truth that you reveal here. That we would know what it is to cut off sin and to distance ourselves from it because we know it lives inside of us, that it's among us, that we're compromised by it. Will we know how to consult with you and to hear your voice? And we would know what it is to turn away from finding our strength in our own resources. And may we continue as a humble people who serve you well, knowing that your presence and your promise, that these are our strengths. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.